Okay, I want you to take a minute and just write down three words or phrases of things that you, let's, I'm, I'm going to use the word feel when you hear evangelism. Could be excitement, could be guilt, could be shame, could be whatever. So just write down three words that you feel when you say, I'm going to talk about evangelism. or a little tiny little phrase no more than three word phrase okay give me some of them please madeline give me your three okay i am your underling so yeah i know we all know that yeah she is my underling okay and i have two underlings now on staff so chad wasn't really an underling he was sort of an, like a underling, but he belonged to other people, you know, so anyway, go ahead, Madeline. Uh, daunting. Daunting. Nervous and energizing. Nervous, okay. Energizing. Allison is next. Uh, undisciplined. Undisciplined. And then Yeah, 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 like, like, yeah, yeah, get it. I, I like unsharp. That's a good made up word. Okay. That's okay. Move on. Yeah. Weighty. What was that? Gift giving. Impassioned? No, just passion. Passion. Could you have a passion for it? Okay. Good. Shaky. Shaky. Shaky staker. Okay. Sweaty. Something with an S. Okay. What? Awe? Like awe, like awesome? Yeah. Okay. Oh, awe. Awe. Okay. Got it. Okay. Uh, awkwardness. Awkward. Mm. Um, guilt. Confrontation. Confrontational. Confrontational. Like it has to be confrontational. It feels like it is. Okay. And that's not. Fun. Okay. That's sweaty. Makes me makes me sweat. Okay. Lydia. Important. Okay. Unfamiliar. Okay. Under emphasize. Okay. Paul? Uh, apprehension. Apprehension. Uh, urgency. Urgency. Uh, commissioning. Commissioning? Yeah. Okay. Got it. Next. Uh, nervous. Sorry, up there. Nervous. Sorry, up there. Nervous. Oh, well, let's do it again. <laughs> nervous, nervous. Let's nervous. Okay. Yep. Tongue tied. Conflict. Conflict. Okay, next. Anxious. Anxious. Pressured and afraid. Pressured. <laughs> wow. I can see you have a lot of fun with this. Okay, okay. next. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I also have urgency. Uh, 
urgency. I also had anxiety. Um, and then I had inconsistency. Inconsistent. Okay, and Christy? I had approach. Approach? Mm -hmm. Explain that to me. Oh, okay, got it. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, and ill-equipped. Ill-equipped. And unknown. And unknown. Okay. Good. This is great. These are all very real. And things I still feel um, on different, not maybe not all of them, but because um, there's a lot of feelings. Um, and it'd be confused to feel all of those at the same time. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> okay. So I want to have one word that um, I would like us to pray for in our lives. Okay. This is a goal. So I don't want you to feel guilt about this. I don't want you to feel anxious about this. Just want you to take this to the Lord and just say, Lord, give me this one word for evangelism. Help me to grow into this. And that is the word joy. Okay. Now notice nobody, nobody put that up there. Um, is anybody even close? Um, energized and passionate. Yeah, so I want the word joy up there. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't count. Okay. Um, so Jesus told these three great parables in the Gospel of Luke, and let's actually turn there to Luke chapter 15. I just want to read three verses. So um, Luke chapter 15. I had my Bible, but I didn't bring it in, so it is verse. Yeah, so I'll just go ahead and read these. So Jesus is... Um, He's with the tax collectors and sinners. They're all drawing near to him. So they obviously, sinners liked being with Jesus. Even though he said really hard things, they liked being around him. Um, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then he tells three parables. So I'll just read the end of these three parables. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who, who repents. And then um, verse 24, um, the, for the son of mine uh, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So the physical embodied expression of joy. So I want to, um, yeah, ask you to pray that the Lord would give you joy in evangelism. Um, and all these things still might be there, but uh, just a growing joy. So I want to put the fun back in evangelism. So the word I came with is evangelism. Evangelism, okay? So um, let me tell you a story. Um, so what? Fungalism? Fungalism. But you got to evangel is the good news. So evangelism. Um, so... Um, so this is a true story. I think I'm going to sit down as I tell this, okay, if you don't mind. So, um, so I was, uh, the bishop asked me to preach at uh, Emmanuel for the Good Friday service um, this year. And so I, I went. So he traded me out to, uh, loaned me out to Father Aaron. So I preached and I went. It was a great service. Really enjoyed it. Um, and felt like the Lord really moved, and so it was just a great church experience, you know? Um, and I was driving home, it was about 11 o'clock at night on Good Friday, so it's 11 on a Friday night. Um, I'm driving home, and there's uh, some traffic backed up on I-88, right by I-355. I'm thinking, what is going on? It's 11 o'clock on a Friday night. Why is there so much traffic? And I'm thinking, somebody, somebody's like, had an accident. You know, and I'm like getting some idiot, you know, probably ran into somebody. So like, I'm like, 
yeah, such a great attitude after the Good Friday service. But anyway, I was getting like really irritated and I just wanted to get home. I was hungry, you know, you fast. I was fasting, I was hungry. So, um, so I drive by and there's two cars that look like they'd rear, somebody had rear-ended somebody. And I realized everybody's kind of driving by really slow and kind of looking. And I drive by and I go, oh, there's an accident. And there's one person that stopped in a big white pickup truck. And um, I um, think, oh, okay, well, somebody's there and somebody's gonna stop. Um, and by the way, so I had my collar on, but I, I did this little thing where I retract it. So, and then I unbutton it. So I'm like off duty. So, um, so <clears throat> I drive by and I look in this, the first car and it's a little Saturn a five-seater, and there are eight people in this car. So there's a two women and a teenager, and then in the back seat, there are five little kids. Obviously, none of them are buckled in. So this is on, and it's windy, and it's cold, and um, I'm like, I gotta stop, you know? So I pull over and I walk back there, and they're all in the car, and it's dangerous. So I, me and this, this other woman that stopped, we helped get them out of the car. So they're standing against the concrete uh, embankment thing, you know, and the, the kids are just like shivering because they don't have enough clothes on. And, um, th you know, there's really nothing. We, the police are coming, so the people behind them that hit them are a uh, Latino couple, um, <clears throat> and they were... I don't know whose fault it was, but they were kind of shook up. Um, so we got them against the embankment and the police are on their way. And I just stood with them, sat with them, and then I took my collar, whipped it out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the church is here. <laughs> That's what I thought. I just felt like Superman. I just saw Clark Kent. No, they just went into my boot. <laughs> Whoa, where did you come from? <laughs> Who was that other guy? <laughs> and um, so <clears throat> I just tried to comfort the kids, tried to calm them down. Um, and the police came and they were like trying to get information and you know how the police are when they come, they like immediately take charge, which was part, it was good and they, they got the, the cars out of, they got the kids in their car and um, everything seemed to kind of settle down. And so um, I drove away and I just started sobbing. Like I have never, probably never sobbed in my life, you know? I just could not stop sobbing. I just like sobbed the whole way home. And I was journaling about it that next week and I realized I was sobbing because I just, because of those kids, you know, it's like five kids in the back of a car, not buckled in. What were they doing at 11 p.m. at night? What kind of broken family system is this, you know? Um, and, and then, I, but I was also sobbing just because, sobbing really for joy, because I just thought, this is what the church is. This is where the church is supposed to be. This is what we do. We worship, we worship, we gather around the Lord, we worship, we celebrate him, and then we're sent into the world. You know, the deacon at the end, you go into the world. And um, just thought this is why we exist as a church. Um, not just mission, but mission flowing from worship. And so this was actually the two days before I went on sabbatical. So I just felt like it was so providential. And I felt like God was giving me a message, just that this is what your life is about. This is what the church is about. And this is where we're supposed to be. And this is joy. There is joy in this, that we can be in this calling. So, um, so that's the joy I want us to have. Um, yeah, your heart's broken, but then there's also joy that the Lord is calling you into this, and he's going to use you in the midst of this. So, so that is, um, and that is God's heart <clears throat> um, for evangelism. So everything, everything flows from that. 
everything flows from his heart for lost people. And I love that Rembrandt etching of the, his earlier uh, sketching of the return of the prodigal son, um, just that embrace. So um, first, very first, I, I want us to look at that, that heart of God will shape us and form us to look at people in a certain way. So when I'm in Vancouver riding on public transportation and I three, see three guys, Sikhs with their turbans, three young guys, I'm thinking, what is the heart of God for these guys? You know, what is the heart of God? We're always, um, <clears throat> I meet a guy on the train going to Vancouver, uh, math professor, um, at Penn State, brilliant guy, and I think, oh, he's probably, you know, atheist, scientist. It's like, I don't, why would I even want to talk to him? And then I begin to listen to his story, and it unravels that he's actually got an immense amount of hurt and pain behind his brilliance. Um, and he's actually very spiritually open. Uh, at one point, he was going to Young Life, and... Um, He's asking questions, and he says, I, I just can't be a Christian because, and I say, well, why? You know, what, what, what do you think is the biggest hang-up for you? You know, and he says, well, it's just that, you know, people accept Jesus, and then that's it. That's the end of it. Buddhism I find more attractive because it's more of a way of life, and it's more of discipline. And I, and I say, you know, if I, I can see your point. If I thought that way about Christianity, I'd probably feel the same way. But if you considered this, you know, about Christianity. It's like, oh, no, I've never really thought about it that way before. So anyway, we get the heart of God for people, and we begin to see the world that way. So that's the heart of God. What is evangelism? Um, let's see. Uh, Lydia, why don't you go ahead and read that first definition. It's a long one from J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. <clears throat> Okay, let's flip it over. This one's a little more concise. Um, but uh, let's see. Hudson, why don't you read that one? <clears throat> a presentation of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit so that people will put their trust in God through him, accept him as their Savior, and serve him as their King in the fellowship of his church. Let's just take a minute and pause. And what, what strikes you in those definitions or what resonates with you or warms your heart or surprises you or you disagree with or whatever. Just take a pause and <clears throat> look at them a little bit. <clears throat> Share your thoughts. <clears throat> Yeah.
Yeah, right. It's good. We'll talk a little later about the process of evangelism. Evangelism is often a process for people. <clears throat> I like the fact, too, that it's, it's um, the results aren't what counts as evangelism. You know, that's, that's really in the Lord's hands. But, but the desire for conversion, you know, um, like I was talking to a woman named Jean at two brothers that we get together for a coffee. She hates, she says she, she hates organized religion and of all the organized religions, she hates Christianity the most. And I, I want to say, well, we're, not really, we're really not that organized, but anyway, um, <laughs> um, anyway, I, uh, where was I going with that? Um, oh, she said something to the effect. You know, we're having this conversation. She says, well, it's not like we're going to change each other's minds. And I say, well, it's, I am hoping that I will change your mind, actually. You know, and she, she laughed. I mean, we have the kind of relationship where I could just say that and just say, actually, I am hoping I'll change your mind. So, um, I mean, we are honest about that. I just, I really do. I want to see you come to know the Lord. Um, um, let's, anything else? Any other comments on that? <clears throat> uh, I, I just like when Captain Andrew talked to the presentation of Jesus Christ mm. um, as Savior and as King. Um, I just like the focus on Jesus, uh, the person of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. I wonder really like how it follows that with the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Like you know, when I think of evangelism, so often triggers like there's so much that I would have to do, you know. Yeah. There's a lot that feels like, oh man, that would be so much work. But there's there's something about if you're doing if that presentation is done in the power of the spirit, there's you know, it's totally God's work is sort of a vessel for that that presentation. Like yeah. And, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really Yeah, and that probably makes you feel awe, knowing that it's a person, <laughs> right? You should. should should feel awe. Um, who who said that? Was that a professor? Okay. That's good. It's a good way to look at it. It's not like, uh, well, kind of what like Mark was saying too. It's not like yeah. this huge content dump that we're yeah. getting into people. And that was, I thought, four spiritual laws really had its place, and I think God used it in a lot of ways. And I, I wouldn't say that God couldn't use it, but it did really focus on sort of propositional content, you know. Um, but I think it also presented Jesus in there as well. But um, yeah, that's good. <clears throat> um, let me 
just talk a little bit about evangelism and social justice, and then I want to do a little case study with you guys. Um, so evangelism, social justice, so this has been like a battle in the church for about 100 years. So how do we balance these two things? And it used to be like in the 30s and the 40s, evangelicals um, and the church, probably not the Catholics, but the church, the Protestant church, was the evangelicals um, had a really hard time with social justice, social action, deeds of mercy, sort of downplaying them. So you could be a you could be an out and out racist, but as long as you accepted Jesus as your savior, it's no problem. You could be living under apartheid and benefiting from it and buying into it and love it in South Africa and still be a good church member, you know? So obviously that kind of stuff is just horrific and just so unbiblical and such a truncated gospel. So then there was a period in the 60s and 70s and 80s where you had people like John Stott who like a great Bible teacher, British Bible teacher, tried to present a really balanced approach that they're both important, but you can't, you can't make social justice, just social justice by itself is not evangelism, but just evangelism without any kind of social action against people's needs is also, is just a really truncated gospel and doesn't follow the, the words of Jesus. So now we live in a day where it has become really lopsided the other way. Um, and where social justice is really cool, uh, but evangelism is, eh, that's, that's awkward, you know? I mean, for everybody, it's really awkward, and so we don't want to go there. So anyway, I love Andy, Andy Crouch, what he says about this, and uh, Paul, why don't you go ahead and read that quote there. <clears throat> So, um, yeah, I, I don't think I really need to add anything to that. I mean, he would also say, in the context, he would go on to say, social justice is something we're called to do. But it's, it's a both and. It's not an either or. Um, and you look at the life of Jesus, like in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a couple in, at the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 9. There's two mini, mini M-I-N-I, summaries of Jesus' ministry. And they're almost identical. And both of them talk about Jesus' um, deed and word. He's doing deeds. He's healing people. Um, he's delivering people from demonic oppression. Um, he's meeting people's physical needs. And he's proclaiming the gospel. And there's no, like, there's no, like, they're separate buckets. They're just, that's what Jesus does. Uh, so it's not like, why would we pit them against each other? Um, so the church does what Jesus does. So um, let's look at a case study. I think you will find this. Anybody know the testimony of Rosario Butterfield? Anybody seen her testimony? How many? How many have seen her testimony? Uh, oh, okay. Well, <clears throat> let's take a look at it. I'm going to actually pass out two of them, and you can read this one later. So this is about an MIT professor who met the author of all knowledge. By the way, go to Christianity Today, the magazine, and then um, find their testimonies. A lot of them are free. So on the back page of every magazine, they do these testimonies, and they're really well done, uh, with people of all kinds of backgrounds coming to know the Lord. And almost all of them involve somebody speaking into their life, being there for these people. So they're really cool. They're really actually very beautiful and moving. So take this. <clears throat> And what we're going to see is uh, how the Lord 
uses the church, which kind of gets into my next point as well. It takes a church to evangelize. Um, so this is it's fairly short. Let's let's read together the whole. Let's read together the whole thing. Well, we might skip a few here and there, but um, let's start. Why don't I start, and we'll just go around, read a paragraph, or if it's a short one, read two. Um, okay. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark to end it rather than to deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. So, as we say in Long Island, tell us what you really think. Okay, so go ahead. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. Fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttress the Christian right. Pat Robertson's quip from the 1992 Republican National Convention pushed me over the edge. Folk feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, become lesbians, unquote. Indeed, the surround sound of Christian dogma commingling with Republican politics demanded my after my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital inputs. Aids activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist church, to name a few. Even if you believed in Devoe's stories, Tom and David, by Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The GLBT community's values ossified and the plight of its will sacrificed in integrity. I began researching living with this right, an anthropologist who was living as queer like me. To do this, I needed to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people <coughs> off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, trans patriarchy, and a four-month article in the local Everybody know about promise keepers? Is that? I so it's like a huge men's movement in the um, evangelical church in the 90s that brought men together in these like football stadiums, like 50,000 men, and you'd hear manly men talking about manly things um, like football stars and things like that. I mean, football star speakers. and But it was actually, so it, it had its weaknesses, but it was actually really good and it actually called a lot of men to kind of wake up and take responsibility for loving their wives and loving their children and following the Lord. And so, um, so there were some good things that came out of it. Anyway, go ahead. <clears throat>
That is not what Cain did. He did not talk. He engaged. So when his mother invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at this time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. <clears throat> Something else happened. Ken and his wife Floyd and I uh, became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and power and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends with them. I started reading the Bible. I read the way of gluttony of ours. I read it many times that first year of multiple temptations. <clears throat> At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay covered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it is true? What if Jesus is continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then, one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Bob was everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost. And I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like steps of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the I'll. Then one ordinary day I came to Jesus open-handed and naked in this war, in this war of worldviews. Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine, sanguine, sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. That's the end of the story. Oh, yeah. I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life, and my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shining and still in Thank you. Yeah. So, what do you learn about evangelism from this story? Uh, 
Hmm. Presence of Ken and Floyd. Yeah. Surprised, yeah. yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's good. Well, one of the reasons why I showed you this is um, well, two reasons, I guess. One is I just want us to long for stories like this. Just have a longing that this will happen more often, and that the Lord would use us as one of the people in the process. Um, so first, the longing, then secondly, to just show you the. I love the way the church was involved with this. You know, I mean, he happened to be a pastor, but it looked like the whole church was involved in this. And I love that, which leads me to my next point. It takes a church to evangelize. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 talks about how we are a, um, we are a chosen race. We're a holy nation, uh, echoing the words of the Old Testament that Israel was a light to the nations. We're a peculiar people. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness into his light. So, and that's the whole church that does that. Um, let me tell you a story, a true story from Rez. So there's a woman named Claire that came to church. Um, well, she was living in uh, St. Charles, I think. She had what she called her perfect life, white picket fence. She was married to this wonderful guy named Chris. Um, they had a child on the way. Um, so she was pregnant. She's a very competent editor, um, marketer, and so she had a great life. Um, Chris had some problems with uh, drugs and alcohol. Uh, he wound up having an accident and he died in the car accident. Um, her world was absolutely shattered. She knew somebody um, who was the daughter of some people who had just recently started attending our church, Bob and Roseanne Erickson. So their daughter knew her, was friends with her, and reached out to her, and eventually invited her to church here at Res. So Bob and uh, Roseanne would start going with her to church. She had absolutely no church background. Um, she was raised in sort of a postmodern, post-Christian place in England, um, although she's American. But um, so absolutely no, it was all weird to her. But she kept coming. Um, she met me, she met Bishop Stewart, um, and then she started coming to, uh, she came to Alpha, although at that point it wasn't really Alpha, it was what we called Alpha, but it was uh, Alpha 
alpha, um, corrupted alpha, you know, that we used to run here. But, but anyway, it, it, <laughs> it wasn't alpha, but we called it alpha. What? It was, all, it, was, it was, yeah, people, yeah, they, they stole the alpha and then we resified it until it was no longer alpha. But anyway, it was a good thing, but that's beside the point. But um, so she started coming and uh, then she, she started emailing me questions <clears throat> and emailing, and she's really smart and she studied philosophy. So she started emailing more questions and more questions and I'd get these questions and I'd go, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say, I gotta think about this. You know, so then we, we, actually, we eventually, I printed it all out. We had probably an email correspondence like this thick of her letters. And they were not all questions, but some of them were just her ponderings and musings and hurt and pain and then, and then my answers. And so um, for some reason, you know, at that point, I, I really had a lot of time to just focus on her questions. And so... Um, <clears throat> She had all these doubts, and, but she kept coming to church. She kept worshiping. And then one day she said, um, she said it was like uh, all the noise, like there, there's all this noise in the background, all this static, and she couldn't hear or see or perceive God. And then all of a sudden it was like the noise just stopped. And all the doubts just stopped. And then she could believe. She became a believer. Um, and now she's... Um, she remarried a guy from our church named Mike. They have another son together. And Mike adopted the, the child that was eventually born from her and Chris named Nicholas. Um, uh, there was just a ton of people involved in her life. Margie, Deacon Margie, was really involved in her life. Um, the Ericsons were really involved. Bishop Stewart was involved. Um, we just had uh, like a community around her. And it just made me think, like, the, the idea of the lone evangelist out there doing his or her thing. I mean, I think there's still a place for that. And, but most of us are not going to do it that way. Uh, most of it is going to be we're part of a church, and the church is walking beside people and caring for people and loving for people and bringing them. So <clears throat> three quotes from one of my... Heroes of Missiology, a guy named Leslie Newbegin. So Leslie Newbegin was a uh, missionary in, what was he? Was he a Lutheran, right? I was Presbyterian. So he was a missionary in uh, India for what, like 40 years? Mark knows more about him than I did. So he was a missionary in India, and then he kind of semi-retired, came back to the, uh, uh, Britain, where he was from, and he began to see, oh man, the West. The West needs to be. The West needs missionary. How can I be a missionary in the West? And one of his themes was, it's got to be the church. The church has to embody the message of the gospel. So let me just read a few of his quotes. The primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on the cross. The foolishness of the cross, as Paul said. The only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Um, flip it over, or next page. Evangelism would lose its power apart from the life of a new community, a, a new kind of community where the saving power of the gospel is known and tasted. The church already embodies, or it should embody, a foretaste of God's kingdom, a foretaste of a different social order. So this just, this really challenges me. It's like, so we're a foretaste of the, the gospel, where the gospel has already been tasted. How do we live that out? How do we live that out with our neighbors? How do we live that out as a people that lay down their lives for people around us, you know? So I don't have a lot more to say about that, but I just want that to stir within you. Um, okay, a couple other points. <clears throat> so evangelism involves weakness, always, risk, almost always, and suffering, sometimes. So, um, but there's no way that you can get away from some of this stuff. So even if you're like the 
most amazing evangelist in the world, you still may feel some of these things like the Apostle Paul did. So when he came to Corinth, he's, he's really talking about preaching, but I think, it, I think it apply, it's a pro, he's really talking about proclamation of the gospel, which I think is just evangelism. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So if you feel weakness and fear and much trembling, you're in good company. That does not disqualify you um, at all. Actually, it qualifies you. Um, so you will feel weakness. Um, let me just share a little bit. So this is a great book, Evangelism in the Early Church by Michael Green. Um, but he's got a couple great quotes here. Let me think here. Page, where am I? Page 50, 51. So he's talking about obstacles to evangelism. And he says, First and foremost, among the difficulties the early missionaries encountered was the fact that they were nobodies. A handful of men and women without formal rabbinic training were attempting to correct the theology and belief, let alone the religious practice, of properly qualified professional religious leaders. Men and women, moreover, who stood in tradition of oral instruction, which was supposed to reach back to Moses. What impertinence. Like, what are they doing? Here's another one. He's talking about the 11 disciples that were left immediately after. So it was a small group of 11 men whom Jesus commissioned to carry on his work and bring the gospel to the whole world. They were not distinguished. They were not well-educated. They had no influential backers. In their own nation, they were nobodies. And in any case, their own nation was a mere second-class province on the eastern extremity of the Roman map. If they had stopped to weigh up the probabilities of succeeding in their mission, even granted their conviction that Jesus was alive and that his spirit went with them to equip them for their task, their hearts must surely have sunk, so heavily were the odds weighted against them. How could they possibly succeed? And yet they did. I love that. Um, they, they were. They were nobodies. Nobody was, nobody was writing about them. I mean, if, they were, if there would have been mainstream media outlets like we have today, nobody would have been covering their story. Um, my, uh, my sister, who's an agnostic slash atheist, she, um, she's like, why aren't there more stories of Christians doing good things? I'm like, well, there could be a lot of reasons, but one of them is we're told not to really talk about the good things we do that much. And secondly, mainstream media is just not that interested in it. You know, I mean, the stories just don't really sell that well. So, I mean, that is part of it. Um, so it involves weakness. It involves risk. The fact that somebody could reject you, somebody could misunderstand you, somebody could think you're a hater, somebody could think all kinds of bad things about you, somebody could think you're mentally ill, somebody could think you're, I mean, the Soviet Union, they were um, sub, uh, admitting Christians into mental hospitals, you know, treating them for mental illness because they thought they were crazy. Um, so, but in our day, it could be social ostracism in the Middle East. You could be much, face much more serious repercussions from coming to Christ from Muslim background. So, um, but that's true other places in the world. China is getting tighter and tighter on religious liberties. It's going to get worse and worse, I think. So, and in our culture, there will always be risk. Even just, and, and I would say, especially for us in our day, just plunge into the risk. Just plunge into it and see what happens. Um, I've been doing this with my sister in this email exchange we're doing. It's just like, let's just lay it out there. Our family never talks about this stuff. So let's just lay it out there. I'm just laying out there what I believe. Um, so I got a, like a three-page email response to her. Uh, why are there so many bad Christians in the world? So, um, and I'm just trying to be really honest about the bad, but then the good and what the message of the gospel really is. Um, so, take the risk. And then third, it, it may involve suffering, as we often see in the, in the early church. You read the Gospels, you, or you read the Acts. I mean, you read the Gospels, Jesus promised it. You read the Acts, you see it happening. And you read First Peter and other New Testament le letters, and you see it, it's going to keep happening. So, um, so, yeah. So, don't be afraid of the... We just pray that the Lord would give us joy, even in the midst of even in the midst of weakness, risk, and suffering. Um, a couple other things, and then we'll do a couple things at the end. So first, evangelism is both prophetic 
and a process. Um, by prophetic, so especially if you read the Gospel of Acts, let me see what I put there. Okay, so I, prophetic evangelism refers to verbal presentation of the Gospel and acts of compassion that tend to be delivered in an extemporaneous and spontaneous manner as a result of an explicit sense that the disciple is being prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so in a particular way at a particular time. That guy needs an editor. But um, that's a long sentence. But you get the point. So it is a prophetic evangelism. We think we're, we're, we do a lot of prophecy on people. We prophesy over people. What would it look like to do that in our evangelism, as they often did in the book of Acts? So all of a sudden, there's this Ethiopian eunuch and now there's this believer, Philip, sitting by him. What are you reading? What are you reading there? What's going on? Uh, what's the Lord saying to you? Uh, what would it look like to bring a word of knowledge? What would it look like to, you know, I've been praying for you, and I just had this sense. I don't know for sure, but I just had this sense that maybe God is trying to do something in your life, you know? Um, now, again, you have to have a relationship. I wouldn't even say you necessarily have to have a relationship with that person, you know? I mean, there can be all kinds of weird ways to do this, but I'm not worried so much about us being weird. I'm worried about us not being prophetic at all because it's just too scary. Um, just trying to think of an example. Um, so I was talking to my friend Cindy, and also had two brothers, um, and she was, she was talking about this funeral she went to where the Catholic priest was giving a message, and the message was, she, I think she got it all convoluted and messed up. So I think she did not understand the message at all because the priest would have been speaking absolute heresy if that's what he actually said. So I'm going, I'm going inside, <gasps> I hope he didn't say that. Or, and then I'm thinking, I think you really misunderstood what he was saying. Um, but I just kind of let it go. <clears throat> and I said, it was something about how Jesus loves us, you know, and, but then it went on into heresy. But I said, you know, Cindy, I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder if the Lord was really trying to tell you just how much he loves you and that he's really trying to get your attention, you know? I mean, that's, that's all I could say, you know? And I, it was, so it was a really soft, prophetic word. Um, but we can do that. So it is prophetic, but then it's also a process. So let me see what I put in there. Most, this is from Tim Keller. Most people in the West need to be welcomed, and I, I would imagine this is true also in the Muslim world as well. Most people in the West need to be welcomed into community long enough for them to hear multiple expressions of the gospel, both formal and informal, from individuals and teachers. As this happens in community, non-believers come to understand the character of God, sin, and grace. Many of their objections are answered through this process. That's what Redeemer, the Redeemer Church Network with Tim Keller does really well. So they lead people through a process. Um, he's actually got... Let me just do this real quick. So he's actually got a five-step process. or He calls them mini, mini decisions. M-I-N-I. Mini decisions. People have to make lots of mini decisions before they will come to Christ. First is awareness. So awareness is, <clears throat> I see it. Somebody says, oh, wait a minute. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what a real Christian looks like. I thought they were all just haters. I thought they were all just stupid. I like Rosario Butterfield, you know? It's like, oh, now I, I, I'm beginning to see it. Second stage is relevance. And that is, <clears throat> I need it. This actually relates to my life. Oh my gosh, this isn't just some thing that happened 2,000 years ago. It's it's relevant to today. Third is credibility. And that is, I need it because it's true.
um, <clears throat> it makes sense of the world. By the way, let me recommend a book, another book I read. If you're going to work in the West and try to evangelize in the West and answer people's heart longings and deepest questions, get this book. It's amazing. Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, it is the best. I've read a lot of books like this, like, here's the 10 hardest questions for Christians to answer, and most of them, like, oh, man, now I have more doubts than before I started this book, because they didn't give very good answers. So, but anyway, this one is really good. Um, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion, religion hinder morality? Doesn't religion cause violence? How can you take the Bible literally? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? And how could a loving God send people to hell? Um, she answers, I love her answers. They're so, she's so smart, but she's also so, um, she's just thought through them on a feeling level as well. And so anyway, she's, she's amazing. Um, and then, <clears throat> so that's the credibility thing. And then trial is, <clears throat> um, I see what it would look like. So they come to a small group. Um, we, had our woman, we had a woman last night at our res group <clears throat> who is, um, has been led to the Lord from a family in our church because they, this woman, um, it was through a dog connection. They got connected through a dog, which is not important to the story. But um, so she started, started coming to church. The woman has accepted the Lord. She is following the Lord. And right now, she was at our res group. She's going through a really, really painful divorce. Her husband has had multiple, multiple affairs um, and even another a child through one of those affairs. And she just found out a truckload of new stuff um, that was horrific. So she's filed for divorce. But she just came to our res group and we just, she shared, she just dumped everything. And she just, we just surrounded her and prayed for her. Um, that's what, it's like she's seen what Christianity looks like. Um, now, that, I can imagine. And, but she saw what it was looking like even before then. And then the last thing is commitment. <clears throat> I take it. Again, that's just one way to draw it up. But, and again, Keller would say along this way, there's lots of little decisions that people need to make and lots of little encounters they need to make or to have with people. Um, so it's a process. It's both prophetic and it's a process. So is there one way to evangelize? Um, page four. And this is another Tim Keller thing that I love. So in the book of Acts, there are three evangelistic encounters. <clears throat> And I love it because they're all different. So there's Lydia, the businesswoman, and she was led to the Lord through reasoned discussion. So we appeal to the mind. Um, talk about how Christianity makes sense. You gotta answer, you gotta at least try to answer people's questions or point them to the answers. Um, secondly, there's a slave girl. And there it's a power encounter. It's a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, all of these are really a power encounter with the Holy Spirit. And that, in that kind of evangelism, we, are, we appeal to the heart. So it's not the mind. It's the heart that's broken, that's disordered. And then there's the jailer. And he was led to the Lord through a Christ-like life. We ask someone to imitate our life. Now, <clears throat> that is, can seem really scary and arrogant, but that's New Testament Christianity. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Does that mean we're doing it perfectly? Absolutely not. We have so many problems. We've got so many unresolved issues. We've got so many sins, but yet we're open to the Lord. We're following the Lord. We've experienced him in our life. So it is not, it is very appropriate to, I mean, you might not say, like, follow me, and I will lead you to Jesus. But that's what you're doing, though. It is what you're doing. You're asking someone to imitate your life. 
Um, so all that to say that there are different ways and different, maybe people have different gifts and different ways to do evangelism. So I'm going to skip the last part and let's go to, so we talk about, we've talked often at Res about our evangelism temperature and so a one is very cold and a 10 is very warm. And then along the way you have this scale. I don't know if that's 10, but, um, and then we often ask in staff, we say, where would you put yourself on the evangelism temperature right now? What would, what temperature would you give yourself? I'm a 10, I'm really hot, I'm really excited, I'm really passionate. You know, I'm a one, I'm just super scared and I'm not doing anything and I don't even know how to get started. So I'm not gonna ask you to do that today, but what I am gonna ask you to do is, is right now um, is to just take a couple minutes and just write down one thing that you can do to get more in the more involved and more engaged in evangelism. So one thing you can do and one or two or three people that you are praying for that will come to know the Lord. Um, and the one thing you can do, well, let's make it for now, but I, I also want you to think your whole life, always be asking, where can I go? What can I get involved with? Now, maybe at this point in your life, you can't, but at some point you should be able to. Like, I took an improv comedy class, um, downtown Wheaton. I've never done improv. Um, I performed live and then I retired. And I went out on a high note, I believe, because it was a, quite a stunning performance. Um, actually, it wasn't that good, but it was good. It was decent. I didn't make a fool out of myself. But anyway, I took it just because it was the middle of the winter. I just wanted to be around. I just wanted to make friends with people that don't know Christ. And, it was, it was really fun. Actually, I wish I could have continued in the, more of the classes, but, but I met some people and had some really interesting conversations. Um, so, but anyway, but just right now, what's one thing you can do to raise your temperature? Maybe have a conversation with people, maybe, or, and who are a couple people that you're praying for?